You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. This week we heard part two of a three-part show with Indigenous Action Network hosts Bearcat and Klee in conversation with Seneca Six Nations organiser Amanda Lickers about land trauma and some of the ways in which the climate justice movement continues to perpetuate white supremacy, capitalism and colonialism. This audio was sourced with thanks from Indigenous Action and IndigenousAction.org and you should definitely check them out and support the excellent and radical projects that they do. And you can connect with and support Amanda Licker's untiring and amazing activism at Instagram at scrimpscrap, that's S-K-R-I-M-P-S-K-R-A-P and paypal.com forward slash paypal me forward slash a liquors and you can find those links on our podcast page at 3cr.org.au forward slash earth matters earth matters would like to thank the community broadcasting foundation for their generous support and the community radio network for all their hard work in getting this show out to you Earth Matters is produced at 3CR Community Radio in Fitzroy, Nam, and we can be contacted at earthmatters3cr at gmail.com. And, of course, you can also find us on your socials. That's all for today, but don't forget to tune in next week for more environmental justice stories. People Powered Radio 2XX FM 98.3 and at 2XFM.org.au A volunteer, not-for-profit community station accessible to all. Local voices, local issues, local ideas, local music. If independence and diversity are important to you, become part of the 2XX FM community by subscribing, donating, sponsoring or volunteering. Your support is all we need. Go to 2XFM.org.au and welcome to News from the Drug War Front, Tuesday, June 7th. Welcome, listeners, uh, to today's edition uh, brought to you by Karma, the Canberra Alliance for Harm Minimisation and Advocacy and the Connection, Canberra's peer-based drug and alcohol service for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Morning, Maz. Good morning. Oh, hello, Bryce. How are you? Good morning, my darlings. It's any morning out there, I really have to tell you, but there's no wind. No wind. Still. <laughs> Stay in bed or get yourself a cup of coffee if you like, <clears throat> which I always advocate that you do. If you're going to have a drug first thing in the morning, it might as well be coffee. <laughs> Go out, get yourself a coffee and then whip back into bed, chuck yourself under the doona and drink your coffee and listen to news from the drug war front. And we'll tell you what's going on as far as we're concerned and out from our perspective. That's right. News from the Drug War Front reports on news stories that are relevant to illicit drug users from Australia and around the world. Many of the articles featured in this program come from other sources, including the mainstream media. As such, the contents of this News from the Drug War Front broadcast podcast may not necessarily reflect the views and or policies of Karma and the Connection. Karma and the Connection focuses on harm reduction messages, drug treatment support services, advocacy and community development. We seek to reduce the harms associated with drug use and its criminalisation. 
through the provision of programs that foster community development and the delivery of person-centred holistic health care. CARMA exists to promote the health and human rights of people who use drugs and people who use drug treatment services. And we need to remember that we have human rights. I remember I told you weeks ago that I was so surprised to find that we actually had human rights and that we're entitled <laughs> yes. to human rights. But Very true. Yeah, I mean, I think we spend a lot of our time during our lives as drug users feeling that we really didn't deserve to be treated like humans, but mm. knowing that we had the talents. We were not just drug users, not That's only right. drug users. Yeah. We were more than that and always have been and always will be. We have more <laughs> talents than just that. Who would have thought? <laughs> Who would have thought? Karma and The Connection provide a wide range of services such as peer uh, advocacy, peer treatment support, education, art therapy, support groups, mentoring and referrals. Above all, Karma and The Connection are harm reduction services. Karma and The Connection are located at the Belconnen Churches Centre at Shop 17, Level 1, 54 Benjamin Way. The drop-in hours are 10am to 4pm Monday to Friday and contact can be made or you can ring them on 62533643 or by emailing karma at info at karma.org.au. Karma can assist people with a wide range of issues including advice and advocacy around opioid maintenance treatment, access, accessing and being trained to Paid, trade, traded, <laughs> yeah, paid to treat your hepatitis C in con conjunction with the Hep C, Hep ACT, and the Reach Teach Treat Thrive program, which is RTTT, helping people to cope with and overcome the impact of stigma and discrimination directed towards you as illicit drug users, helping people to access detox, rehab, and other. Alcohol treatment and other, or alcohol, tobacco, and other tr um, treatment services. Uh, well, we have a walk in health clinic with a doctor and nurse from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. every Wednesday. That's tomorrow in partnership with Directions ACT. You don't need an appointment no for that. Appointment. Um, but ring up anyway and yeah. find out yeah. um, what's going on, how many people are there at the time anyway, if you're going to just drop up. Yeah. We need to still remember that COVID-19 is still around and still thriving true. in the ACT. Mm -hmm. um, peer education workshops, including opioid overdose management training, incorporating take-home naloxone, and The Fix, which is a series of one-hour paid workshops that aim to educate people in all aspects of harm reduction. Mm. Providing assistance and advocacy for people who are experiencing social issues or having trouble navigating social services. The Connections Harm Reduction Peer Education Program, Muragadi, is for uh, First Nations Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander clients. The Connection team also offer all the same assistance as Karma, but in a culturally appropriate fashion that's tailored specifically yep. for First Nations clients. If you're having problems associated with alcohol, tobacco or drug use and don't know where to get help or even if you just want to have a chat about your use with someone who can empathise with your experience because it's a peer yep. program. By, I mean... Both services are peer-run services. Yeah. 
Um, so we understand what you're what you're going through and what you are suffering, what you need. You can tell us, yeah. and we will help you to find it. Give Karma yeah. a call. That number is six two five three three six four three. If we're unable to help you, then we'll find someone who can. I certainly will. You know, <clears throat> um, yeah, peer-based organisation, as you said. Uh, we're going to start the show off uh, with a continuation from last week's theme, which was reconciliation uh, theme. Um, now, I want to make a, just an on-air apology to um, Jimmy Capine, who uh, provided his grandfather's statement to the ACT Legislative Assembly. Um, and I did miss a few pages, so we're going to start the show off with uh, reading the full statement. Um, and then we might, we'll probably cut to the news sort of halfway through it. Um, so we'll get through that. Uh, so it's, this is our First Nations story. So this comes from Sergeant at Arm members, Mr. John Williams Mosley, who was representing the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Consultative Council. I begin the statement with Mr. Williams Mosley. Mr. Speaker. May I first of all observe Aboriginal protocol by paying my respects to the traditional owners of this country, the Ngunnawal people. Having done that, I wish to acknowledge and commend the actions of the Legislative Assembly in offering an apology to those Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in the ACT who have suffered it as a result of past practices of forced separation from their families. I would also like to express my sincere thanks to the Assembly for providing the opportunity to today, here in this place, for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to speak from experience about the policies and practices of forced separation. Mr Speaker, I have read the Hansard transcript of 17th of June when a motion was moved in response to bringing them home report. As the Chief Minister stated in moving the motion, it marked an important and historic step in the healing and reconciliation between Indigenous and non-Indigenous members of the ACT community. What was of even greater significance to me, however, was the unconditional agreement by all members of the Assembly in commending the motion and their attendant comments which showed not only a great deal of knowledge and understanding of the issues, which were human, social, cultural and political, emanating from the inquiry's report, but also their ready acceptance that true reconciliation will never be achieved in this country without acknowledging the past. Mr Speaker, the story of forced removal within my family began in 1946, when my mother was removed. It is in my memory, my brother's and sister's memories, and those of my niece and nephews who were also removed. They are not historical, distant or remote memories. We cannot resign them to the past, as some people would prefer us to do. They are lived and relived every day of our lives. Nor are they isolated incidents or aberrations of a few. My family story is a familiar and common one within the broader Indigenous community. However, like so many aspects of Aboriginal Australia, our stories have been hidden or excluded from public view for so long. The National Inquiry into the Separation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Children from their families was an important and earnest attempt to provide the Australian community with the facts as they relate to the extent and nature of this country's assimilation policies. And even through the impact of inquiry's findings has and even though the impact of the inquiry's findings has led the assemb this assembly to describe such practices as abhorrent 
determining what they will not happen, determining that they will not happen in the ACT. There is still a prevailing attitude in the broader community that what was done was done with the best intentions and in best interests of the child. Mm, as we know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Mm-hmm. The um, letter goes on, <clears throat> notwithstanding the argument now being offered that previous assimilation policies should not be viewed by today's standards or values, I continue to have great difficulty in understanding how such reasoning is used to nullify the facts elicited from the inquiry which, in essence, substantiated that the policies of forced removal were an act of genocide, as defined in the 1949 Genocide Convention, that such policies incorporated gross violations of human rights by persons in authority, that such policies denied Aboriginal people substantive common law legal rights and that such policies affected the loss of culture and identity. If government can enact retrospective legislation to prosecute unlawful or illegal acts committed in the past, then why not in this instance? What differentiates us, though, what differentiates those unlawful acts from the terrible civil and criminal wrongs that were perpetrated against us? Why does it take such costly and issue-specific inquiries like the Stolen Generations Inquiry or the Royal Commission into the Aboriginal Deaths in Custody to bring to the public gaze the continuing circumstance of disadvantage, dislocation and disparity between Indigenous and non-Indigenous societies? How much longer do we have to wait before our histories and our knowledges are accepted and given an equal pace place alongside non-Indigenous accounts. While the commonly held view about the intent of assimilation seems to be that what was done was done in the child's best interests, I would like you to think about a view that perhaps runs ran parallel in the minds of earlier politicians, pastoralists and developers. Since 1788, the concept of terra nullius or empty land, has been used by Australian courts to exclude the suggestion of Aboriginal prior ownership or occupancy of this land. As early as the 1890s, governments, churches and pastoralists were thinking about what to do with the growing so-called half-caste population. That's a very offensive term. In their views, traditional Aboriginal people were left were to be left to die out naturally, hence the protection era of the early 1900s, when when governments did what they could, quote, to smooth the dying pillow of the traditional Aborigine. If traditional Aborigines died out, then the question of land ownership, land used, or just compensation, just compensation, would no longer pose a significant problem. As long as they continued to live with their Aboriginal family, they would have legitimate claims to the family's traditional land. I would offer the view that the separation of Aboriginal children, first from their family and then from their land, was nothing more and nothing less than a further strategy to attempt to delimit the number or circumstance of Aboriginal people who could, at law, be considered traditional owners, And, even though the High Court judgment in the Mabo case has now put the rest to rest the legal fiction of terra nullius, 
the Australian common law maintains that Aboriginal claims to land be predicated on being able to show either a traditional or historical connection to the land. The same applies to land claimed under state-based land rights legislation or native title legislation. Given that Aboriginal cultures are predicated on affiliation with land and that land is determined by family's kinship arrangements, if family is removed from then affiliation to land becomes almost impossible to substantiate. This is the case today for the majority of the many thousands of people forcibly removed under assimilation policies. Mr Speaker, for the record, I would like to reiterate to this Assembly those facts which are known to me about the forced removal of my family members. My mother's name was Mary Williams. She was born in Alice Springs into the Western Arento people, Arento people of Hermansburg. She was taken from her family aged 13 years and transported by rail to the Mulgoa Mission at Warragamba, New South Wales, a distance of appro- approximately 2,000 kilometres from her home and country. Her seven younger sisters and two brothers were also taken from Alice Springs when young children. Although they, were, they too were placed in institutions, they were, arguably, more fortunate than her in that they remained in the Northern Territory. Mm-hmm. My mother was 17 years old when I was born at the, at the Salvation Army home, home for unmarried mothers at Merriweather near Newcastle. She named me Douglas Raymond Williams. When I was seven months old, the Aborigines, Aborigines Protection Board and the New South Wales Child Welfare Department placed me for adoption. I was adopted into a non-Aboriginal family whose surname was Mosley. I was then renamed John William Mosley. That's the name that appears on my birth certificate. My mother's name does not appear. After searching for 20-odd years, I finally located my mother. She was alive and living in Tennant Creek. I spoke to her for the first time in 1979 when I was 28 years old. She told me then that she never stopped believing I was alive and that we would meet one day. From the New South Wales archives, I learnt that it took nine years for my mother to return to Alice Springs. She was taken away as a young girl and returned to her country as a 21-year-old woman. In all that time, she was not allowed to contact with her family, was prepared for life as a domestic servant, and her firstborn taken from her under some false pretense. That's atrocious. Mm. At the time of meeting my mother, I also learnt that I was in fact the eldest of her children, and that I had three sisters and three brothers. My brother Kenny, who was three years younger than me, was taken away at birth from Alice Springs and placed on Melville Island. He was permitted to return to our family when he was 11 years old. My sister Elna was taken away aged three months. She too was placed on Melville Island and was permitted to return to our family when she was 10 years old. Her three children, one girl, now aged 21, and two boys, aged 18 and 17 years, were taken away from her as toddlers and placed with adoptive parents. My brother Paul was taken away at birth and adopted to a Greek family in South Australia. He grew up believing he was Greek. 
Through LinkUp, we were reunited with Paul four years ago. He was 33 years old at the time and continues to find it extremely difficult to come to terms with his true identity and his place in our family. We believe there is a twin brother to Paul still to be located. The only information we have was that he was adopted to a non-Indigenous family in Victoria. Three years after being reunited with my mother, I had my name changed by legal instrument to John Williams Mosley to reflect the family names of both my natural family and my adoptive family. Three years later, my mother died of diabetes-induced kidney failure. She was 51 years old. I had grown up knowing I was Aboriginal, and even though my adoptive parents had no knowledge of of Aboriginal cultures or Western Arente culture in particular, they had told me at least... Uh, they had told me at the earliest opportunity that my mother was an Aboriginal woman from Alice Springs. <coughs> Excuse me. The only other fact that they were, they were told by the Welfare Department and the Aborigines Protection Board was that my grandfather was a policeman in the Northern Territory. As a result, I wanted to be a policeman, just like my grandfather. And in 1967, the same year, the Australian population voted overwhelmingly in a referendum for Aboriginal people to be counted in the census as citizens. Wow, people. Yeah. I was accepted as the first Aboriginal police cadet in the New South Wales Police Cadet Corps. Corps. Sorry. Uh, Corps, sorry. I was only one of two Aboriginal cadets accepted in the 40-year history of the cadet corps. Because of the fact that I was taken from my natural family at such a young age and thereafter denied access to my language, my culture, my land and my place in my family, I have no claims to my Aboriginal heritage. And although I was raised in what could only be termed a typical white Australian family, white society will not accept me as white. I'm neither black nor white. My identity resides somewhere in the hyphen in the middle of my name. In every respect, that is nowhere. Three generations of my family, beginning with my mother and continuing with my sister's children, were removed over the last 40 years and either placed in institutions or adopted in the name of assimilation. We were not allowed to grow up with each other or within our families. Consequently, we do not know each other. Sorry, I'm just struggling to get through this. (laughs) We can, in all honesty, be described as dysfunctional. We have no past, and given the mean-spirited and heartless treatment of the stolen generations issued by the current federal government, we have no future. Mr Speaker, if I may be permitted, I would like to conclude by reading a poem that I wrote when I met my mother. It is titled Assimilation and represents my experience of being taken away. It says, Tonight we meet by white design. And through our tears, no cries of protest. We sat and talked from one so young. Of the many years, brown-skinned baby. We didn't share motherless son. Together, 27 years, alone, groping. Divided lives, unknown, stumbling. 27 years of coping. Tears, ambiguity, ambiguity the impetus of my mind. Fears conjoined, desires dual identity, to perceive dissipated being. A vaguely recalled connection shadow between two worlds, 
between mother and son that never meet on one plane. Nine months as one save pain. We shared life's bloods. We shared life's blood, the only common feature before extrusion, mother, to an unfriendly world. Tonight we meet conception of hate and talked and through our tears, prejudice, we sat and talked and alien rules of the many years for the fetal bond we didn't share that was our tie together, like the cord was severed. Thank you, Mr. Williams, mostly. Wow. That's a really powerful poem, isn't it? Yep. Very difficult to read too, not only for its emotion, but the commas all the way through it, 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 it continues. It's like it's almost meant to be read in one breath. You yeah. okay there, boy? Yeah, yeah, just... Uh, it's very difficult to read stuff like that, yeah? Yeah. To um, feel people's... Yeah, we've got a little bit of time for the news. So, like, uh, the, the stories we're going to uh, also cover today, uh, the local one is the National Drug and Alcohol Research Centre uh, about the drug-induced uh, deaths in the ACT. Um yeah, we've actually. We, it's a really good one to be doing, actually, because over the years, it. Uh, in fact, over the last twelve months, we've known that drug-induced deaths have exceeded um, yeah. car de- uh, automobile de- accident deaths yeah. um, substantially, and that's Australian-wide. But this focuses on the ACT, so, saying, but so, but it's also relevant for yes. Australia. So what we might do is go to a quick song, yep. and we'll come back, and we'll go to the news, and then we'll do that story. You're listening to News from the Drug Warfront on People Powered Radio 2XXFM 98.3.
as uh, Japanyanya from uh, Yothu Yindi there. You uh, joined back here in the studio with Bryce. Uh, Maz is just out having a smoke. <laughs> People Powered Radio, 2XM FM 98.3. So we've got a few stories coming up. I'm uh, going to go to the, to the news and we'll come back to the local uh, don't forget to um, if you want more information at Karma just go to karma.org.au and more information on community radio 2XFM.org.au is the uh, website to go to Um, yeah we'll be back after the news on uh, 2XFM National Radio News Hello I'm Emily Minnie. The federal government is warning of an expensive winter amid rising electricity prices. Treasurer Jim Chalmers has described the issues surrounding gas prices as the perfect storm. He's acknowledged a range of factors contributing to the growing energy crisis, including international conflict bumping up demand and a lack of cohesive energy policies from the previous government. Dr Chalmers told the ABC the government is also focusing on long-term measures while working on finding temporary relief. What we want to do by implementing our Powering Australia plan is to introduce some certainty and some resilience into the energy markets so that we can get cleaner and cheaper energy into the system and get power bills down over time. Meanwhile, Labor frontbenchers are warning an expected rise to interest rates today will hit Australian households hard. The Reserve Bank of Australia is expected to announce the second interest rate rise in as many months after it was held at record lows throughout the pandemic. Labor's Jason Clare told Channel 9 many Australians will feel the strain. Particularly for people who've just signed up to a mortgage in the last 12 months. Mm. Uh, For a lot of Aussies, they're ahead in their mortgage, but if you've just signed up and then the bank tells you you've got to pay more, it's going to make it harder and harder. Now, there is no, no simple magic fix to this. Victoria is set to become Australia's first jurisdiction with an authority overseeing a treaty with First Nations Australians with a landmark bill to be introduced to state parliament. The treaty authority will act as an independent umpire and will have a panel made up entirely of Indigenous Australians. It will oversee treaty negotiations between the state government and Indigenous groups, as well as resolve any conflict that may arise. Victoria's Indigenous Affairs Minister, Gabrielle Williams, told the ABC it marks the first steps towards true partnership. This is very much a process that has been um, Aboriginal-led and a a true partnership between the government and the First Peoples Assembly, recognising the unique circumstances of Victoria uh, and the unique circumstances of our colonial history. Trials are about to begin on new antibodies to fight an aggressive form of child brain cancer. The Telethon Kids Cancer Centre has developed a new antibody that stops cancer cells from repairing themselves. The discovery has generated funding from the Cure Brain Cancer Foundation to trial a treatment for kids with aggressive forms of the disease. The centre hopes this new drug will increase the effectiveness of current chemotherapy, but in smaller doses for children. Director of the Telethon Kids Cancer Centre, Professor Terry Johns, says the new funding means the drug should be taken into clinical trial by next year. 
they want to quickly move things into the clinic. So they're supporting the development of projects like this, which are getting towards the end of their development, just to do the final research needed to move it into the clinic. To sport and in NRL, Nathan Brown has stepped away from the New Zealand Warriors after five consecutive losses, ending his stint as coach early. Brown was contracted until the end of next year, but the club's poor start to the season saw club officials move the coach on faster. He will be replaced by Kiwi great Stacey Jones. National Radio News, produced by Charles Sturt University, the Community Radio Network, and supported by the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Welcome back. We're going to go to a, another song. This one's Baker Boy, Cool As Hell, on 2XFM 98.3. That's what a brother do Spreading that mood, bro Get me on the dance floor We could have a dance off Do it all night Feeling all juiced up Getting my groove on Straight it up super We could take a flight I said ooh Got me feeling myself Now put it on you
Welcome back to News from the Drug War Front. Uh, it's 11.07.05. Welcome back, Mass. G'day, Don. Hello, Mike. We're going to uh, go to a local story now. This is from the uh, National Drug and Alcohol Research Centre, which says that the ACT has na- the nation's highest rate of drug-induced deaths as families call for change. Mm. <clears throat> now, we've known this for some time, Australia-wide. But this is... Locally, This is really important. This is from the ABC News by Antoinette Radford from Saturday the 4th of June 2022. The ACT is the highest rate of drug-induced deaths per capita in the country, the National Drug and Alcohol Research Centre has found. According to the latest available data, the estimated rate of drug-induced deaths in the ACT was 12 per 100,000 people, Mm. compared to the national rate of 7.2 deaths per 100,000 people. Lead researcher on the project, Amy Peacock, said another concerning trend identified was that the rate of overdose in the ACT increased from 2019 to 2020. These numbers are only preliminary. We do not anticipate revised numbers coming out too soon, she said. The quote goes on, it's, un- it's likely with those revisions that the numbers will increase further. Mm. I can only agree with that. Yeah. Although we do have had the introduction since then of uh, the naloxone program, yeah. but it's still, I think everybody should be carrying naloxone, yeah. not just just drug users Should and their first friends. Aid kits, just yeah, agree. absolutely, just a part yep. of standard first aid kits. I agree. The researchers found that 52% of deaths were in males, and the age group most affected was 34 to 44 year olds. Mm. The most common drug types involved in the overdoses were anti-epileptic and anti-Parkinsonism drugs, followed by opioids and antidepressants. That's interesting. Anti-epileptic and anti-Parkinsonism. Maybe maybe Lyrica and drugs like that, potentially. Indeed. Mm. Um, Yeah. The exact reason for the increase in drug-related deaths is unclear, but Mm. Devon Bowles from the Alcohol, Tobacco and Other Drugs Association, AZT, said there was an increase in heroin consumption across the Territory in August of 2020. Quote, we do know that the COVID-19 pandemic changed drug supply, changed changed the drug supply, and that in August of 2020, the ACT witnessed a massive spike in heroin consumption per capita, he said. Mm. Quote, it's only possible that there was a change in heroin supply that caught people off guard and unfortunately cost them their lives. Devon Bowles says there was an increase in heroin consumption across the Territory in August 2020, possibly as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. That was from the ABC News. Robert Koenig was quoted. But he added it was hard to know what was behind the increase due to challenges in collecting information. Well, of course. (laughs) Quote, because drug use is illegal, we really have poor visibility of what's behind this trend, so we can't take better action to stop more deaths, Mr Bowles said. Stop the talk and get on with the action. I might just say, though, nothing about us without us, if you're going to start talking about it. Start talking to us. Marion McConnell lost her son to overdose 30 years ago. 
No tragedy like that ever leaves you, she said. She has since dedicated her life to advocacy for those suffering drug addiction. Drug drug use, I would say. Mm. Through her charity, family... Through her organisation, through the organisation, because it's not her charity, Family and Friends for Drug Law, Drug Reform. It's drug law reform, it used to be. She can't believe the ACT is still having the same conversation around harm minimisation strategies as they were having when she first started the organisation. I can't get to saying her at yeah, her it's, charity it's, because um, it's not Marion's charity and she would be, I think affected to think that she was yeah. the only person. Yeah. She may be the spokesperson for it. I think that underscores the urgency to stop the talk and get on with the action, she said. I mean, we know what programs save lives. The ACT is very progressive on debate, but very little action has been happening. And we know that there's many things we know will save lives that we could be doing. Mm. Marion McConnell, who lost her son to drug overdose, has dedicated her life to advocacy for those suffering drug use through her charity. Uh, I'm not going to use the word addiction in there. I don't. Yeah. Um, we don't need another label yeah. uh, for the family and friends for drug reform, uh, as quoted from ABC News, Antoinette Radford. Drug harm minimisation strategies include improved access to supervised consumption centres. Yep. Yep. Greater education of how to safely use drugs. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Improved access to treatments clinics. Yep. Yep. And one significant change, decriminalisation. Uh, another one might be talk to the users. Yeah. 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 Let's do two yeps there. <laughs> Pill testing site and also looking into the feasibility of, of a safe consumption room. Both those measures will save lives. And finally, decriminalisation is vital. Mr. Bowles said, many advocates for drug law reform believe decriminalisation is an important step forward for recreational drug users. Finally, the Mm -hmm. right language. (laughs) These people are already being punished by their drug use and law enforcement comes in on top of it. It doesn't help. And I think our health services and... uh, Well, we know it's it's just a... Yeah. You go through the system and it's... Yeah, and realising that, Mr McConnell said, Mr Bowles echoed that sentiment. Decriminalisation would absolutely reduce drug-related harm. We know that drug decriminalisation does not increase consumption if it's just for personal possession, he said. It does, however, make people more able to seek treatment or harm reduction if they feel like they need it. It's actually one of the best things we can do to reduce future deaths. There is currently a bill set to be debated in the ACT surrounding the decriminalisation of small amounts of illegal substances. Concerns decriminalisation could pave way for organised crime. Police are going to be the natural critics of that, aren't they? Um, The critics of the decriminalisation would say... say it could pave the way for gangs and organised crime to profit from drugs supplied naturally by the New South Wales Police Force. But not everyone supports decrim as a tactic for reducing drug-related harm. The ACT government needs to come up with a better solution. Just decriminalising the drugs isn't the correct solution, according to AFP Association representative Alex Karuna. He said police had concerns that decriminalising drugs would pave the way 
for gangs and organised crime to exploit drugs to make more money. I, I like how they say would, not could. Yeah, or has. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, by increasing the number of drug sales that are going to occur, we're increasing the capacity to do these other heinous crimes, he said. Instead, proposed better education of the concerns around substances and creating larger drug support clinics and healthcare centres. I agree with those last two bits. Drug addiction is a health issue. Yay. Uh, Drug use is a health issue. We support that. We've said that from the beginning. We agree that something needs to change and the government needs to do more, he said. It's not a policing issue, nor is it a decriminalisation issue. The legislation, as it stands, allows police officers officers to divert people currently to those help centres if they existed. The fact is they don't exist. While both sides of the debate fundamentally agree with the requirement for treating uh, drug use as a health issue and both want to see more support services across the Territory, Ms McConnell believes the research points to decriminalisation We've had the inquiries and so much research has been collected. It's all there. We just need to do it, she said. And that's right. I mean, we've been researching and looking into <laughs> drug use in the ACT. And in fact, um, the uh, NH and MRC, National Health and Medicine, and no, it wasn't. It was the, the uh, Public Health Association and Gabriel Bammer from the... Um, I can't remember the name of it. Mm. I know if I had my phone on me that Jack would send me in the name of the place that Gabriel was from. Did research into a heroin program, yep. availability program, or a trial, actually. It was called at the time, not a program. Um, but a pro- the idea was to provide people with heroin or an opioid substance on a regular basis through a government program yeah. and see how much that reduced the deaths mm. and the overdoses and the danger of illicit drug use by provi- providing opioids. Yeah. That was uh, approved by 33% of the police. Yeah. 60% of the ACT population. Yeah. Um, the majority. Number. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The, look, across the community, it was supported by just about everyone. And a third of the police, which was a monumental mm. yep. um, really result. But then, despite the recommendations, excuse me, that came from uh, that report. In came the federal government with John mm. Howard, who yep. put the cap on it. Boom, not happening. Not on my watch. Yeah, yeah. not going to happen at all. So that was the end of it. We still have that report. I can't imagine that people reading the constant reiteration yep. of these this data or yeah. these data. It's the same thing we say it every year. Yeah. People are dying in greater numbers, well, constantly. You know, you know, send people to treatment, send them to re- yeah. send them to jail. The first thing they do when they come out of jail is they have a shot. Yep. They usually do it by themselves and yep. they die yep. because they use at the Tolerance same dose yeah. that they did before they went into jail or before they went into treatment. Mm. And mm. not knowing the, the quality or the quantity, yep. the purity of the drugs that they're using, 
they think that they can get away with using it. We do have naloxone, but you cannot give yourself naloxone no, once no, you're dead. No. It need to be with a friend. Please, people, don't use alone. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there, there's a lot of things you can do to, you know, you can let a friend know you're using, they can give you a call. It's yeah. just... Yep. Or if you if you don't whatever answer the happened. phone, whatever, don't, just yeah. do it safely. You know. Absolutely. I, mean, I did the same with a friend the other day. Ring me when you're going to yeah. have your shot. Yeah. Ring me when you've finished so I know how you are. Yeah, I mean... I know you're all right. And if you don't answer the phone or if you don't ring me within 10 minutes, 15 yeah. minutes, I'll be able to see you. Yeah, all good safe practice. I mean, she states it clearly in that last line. The research is there. The data how many is much there. more? How much more research do we do? have to do? Well, you know, it's been going on for so oh, long; uh, it's just ludicrous, Bryce. Yes. Anyway, yes, yes. Uh, look, we'll go to a song now, Maz. Yep. Um, we'll come back. Uh, this one. Uh, what am I going to play? Uh, I, I I pulled this earlier this morning. This is one of my old favourites from um, being my teenage years. This is a uh, bit of Sex Pistols. Wow.
Holidays in the Sun by the Sex Pistols there on um, News from the Drug War Front. People Powered Radio 2, Double XM. M98.3. <laughs> I got it out eventually. There yeah, you go, yeah. Mouse. Yeah, yeah. All right, I. Um, and mm. you need to remember, you know, we were just talking about Sid and Nancy, um, who both died of yes. an overdose. Um, and there's so many, um, you know, talented people that we can think of or point to that mm. have been had troubles with uh, or had issues with drugs, had used drugs and have used drugs alone and have died as a result of using drugs alone. Yeah. Yeah. It's so easy to save someone from dying by getting involved in the overdose um, what's it called Nolo- opioid overdose? Yeah, yeah. We, we call it the Nolo- opioid Nolo- overdose management yeah. training. Yeah. Um, if you ring six two five three three six four three, Dave will tell you when the next course is on. Yep. Um, normally we would have an idea of when the next course is on, but we don't seem to have it on the script at the moment. So and. Anybody that told me anything would know that it goes in one ear and out the other. <laughs> or falls. I consider it falls off the back of the cliff. When new information comes into my yeah. brain, it comes in the front bit, but all or something falls <laughs> off the back. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just ring Dave. Uh, you can even come into just directly into Karma and grab some naloxone as well. You know, yeah, so that's right. You, you don't need to necessarily wait in, for the that's training. That's right. Yeah, the so. training does pay you oh, yeah, if yeah, you have yeah. to hang around for an hour and learn how to do... Yeah. Um, Resuscitation, and but everybody should be carrying naloxone. The only thing naloxone does is reverse opioid overdose. It does nothing else. So it just does won't hurt. It doesn't hurt anybody in any way. It just reverses opioid overdose. If other drugs have been used, then they will be managed. Yeah, in due course. But opioids can. Be exa- the use of opioids can be exaggerated right. by having other drugs in you. Yeah. And like alcohol plus opioid equals overdose. Yeah, just make sure you're trying opioid to Opioid plus benzodiazepines yeah. can equal overdose. Yeah. If you have naloxone on you or if one of your friends does, they can use that naloxone immediately. Ring up triple um, zero. Yep. Stay on the line. That's the first thing you do. If you have no naloxone, ring up triple zero anyway. Say, I have an overdose here. Mm. What do I do? Or a suspected overdose, what do I do? They will give you instructions on how to do um, heart resuscitation or how they would do how to do resuscitation send an ambulance uh, who will be there while you're still doing resuscitation and you can stop people from dying that way but do get in touch with dave don't freak out about the police because they don't they do do not call the police the only time they will actually call the police if they are afraid of violence and that is about management of the situation. And you only need to say, there's only me here and my friend and I'm worried about him. Anyway, um, so to go on to the next story, now this is from Canada's BC moves to decriminalise small amounts of illicit drugs. I'm pretty sure we've done this before, but nonetheless, we'll do it again because we're going to have to work pretty hard to drag out these um, stories. And I know there's 
you know, plenty of stuff that we could talk about. But what's important, actually, there's a bit there, Hope on the Horizon. Yeah, the national story. Yeah, yeah let's we'll, do that we'll one do first. first. Okay, one. there's another one. Um, Hope on the Horizon. Trials target pharmacotherapy for amphetamine, methamphetamine use. And this is really quite an interesting idea. Mm. This is from the Pennington Institute um, or by the Pennington Institute from the bulletin from the 1st of the 6th, 2022. A pharmacotherapy option for problematic methamphetamine use is, well, well, that's <laughs> great, great <laughs> language, use of yeah. language. Yeah. For problematic methamphetamine use is being assessed in two trials conducted by Australia's Origin Institute. Um, Origins Dr. Alexandra Guerin told interviewers, quote, the best practice to treat substance use disorders is to combine both pharmaco and psychosocial therapies. For unfortunately, there's no efficacious medication for methamphetamine use disorder and medications are needed to bolster the effects of psychosocial treatments that are already available. Mm. Method method one, ketamine as a cure. That's a question. Hello. Dr. Guerin says there's very strong evidence, that's in quotes, for ketamine in treating problematic cocaine use, but no corresponding research for methamphetamine use. Through its methamphetamine use in young people's sub-anesthetic ketamine, open label trial, wow, mascot (laughs) for short, Origin aims to address this shortfall. The aim is, quote, to testify to the safety, to test the safety and tolerability of two ketamine doses administered subcutaneously seven days apart in participants with moderate to severe methamphetamine use disorder. It's an interesting idea, isn't it? Mm. The potential for participants to seek ketamine outside the trial is front of mind for researchers. While the therapeutic dosage is comparable to a low reactional, recreational sorry, dose of illicit ketamine, the controlled setting and drug purity make this a very different experience. Alex says the first participant was, quote, amazed at how different the effects of ketamine were in the hospital to what they'd had recently. Not a surprise to me, I would have thought, but he was amazed. Had ketamine in the hospital. Uh, What gives ketamine its pharmacotherapy potential? Well, Associate Professor Gilinda Beedi says... There's, quote, there's been a lot of work done in depression where ketamine produces a very rapid onset antidepressive effect that lasts for around about seven to ten days. This may be caused by an alteration to the neurobiology which lasts beyond the acute drug effects. While MASCOT lacks the funding for concurrent psychosocial treatment, Gill says if we can establish both the feasibility and the safety of ketamine in these early studies, we will then launch into a bigger study that we will use the combination method. Method two, a cannabis-based approach. The the second study is known as the cannabidol, a normal pharmacotherapy for lowering methamphetamine use or Calm. Well, I love these acronyms. They've yeah. managed to just drag out, <laughs> drag out of the woodwork. Yeah, out of all those words. 
Dr. Guerin says, uh, Guerin says the two studies aims uh, and mythologies, quote, are fairly similar. However, what's different here is that the CBD will be taken every day, daily capsules, and participants will be taking it for eight weeks. Now, the progress to date on the study is uh, twice been delayed due to COVID. The mascot study has just completed trialling in its first, its first uh, participant. Associate Professor Gillander Beattie points out, realistically, we're at the end of the mascot funding, but we have a little bit of wiggle room. I think we can probably go on for another year. Well, that's good. Yeah. Uh, Calm will run for at least another year and is due to start in the next three months. So are you eligible? Well, you've got to be age 15 to 25. I'm afraid that excludes both myself and uh, you, you. I'm Marianne. safe anyway, darling. <laughs> Currently using methamphetamine, have light to severe methamphetamine use, uh, used within the previous two weeks, and want to ultimately reduce your use. The Dr. Guerin says they don't have to be actively taking steps to reduce, but they have to tell us that, yes, they are seeking to reduce their methamphetamine use. So anyone interested in participating in the important research can fill out an expression of interest at the Origin website. That's www.origin.org.au. And Origin is spelled O-R-Y-G-E-N. Yes, and that's all in lowercase, www.origin.org.au. Um, that's interesting, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I uh, like the idea of um, ketamine being used. So twice... In uh, what is it? Twice in a in a seven days. Apart? Seven days, I think. Yeah, seven. Yep, yep. Um, that's interesting. The whole idea of it is interesting, and the cannabidiol, the CBD oil, mm. I assume, is what it is in yep. a capsule. Yep. Also, an interesting idea. Um, and access to that is um, an issue that we've talked about on this show before too. Yeah. Yep. But at least access to it through a trial would be a whole different kettle of fish. And reducing people, because I know quite a few people who do use um, methamphetamine or mm. ice and are not particularly keen on it, but what they do want to do is calm themselves down. Yeah. So the yeah. concept of this calm project makes um, yeah. makes for very sensible reading and very sensible basis. It's, it's frightening that, that um, they, the need for these studies exists, especially for the age, you know, from 15. The, obviously, methamphetamine use is becoming a massive issue with young people. Yeah. And that's pretty terrifying, to be honest. Well, I'm acknowledging just... that 15 is a... That 15... Normally, people would be saying that's too young. Yeah. Okay, under 18, you're not supposed to acknowledge that people use drugs. Well, they do. They do, yeah. And we know they do. Yep. But we know anecdotally, okay, and capital A anecdotal has nothing to do with capital R research. No. We've known that for a really long time. What we know as drug users or as peers... Yep as opposed to what is known by researchers, mm. completely different yeah, yeah. level of respect is um, given to the research. Yeah. Uh, and 
what I think the anecdotal stuff does is it directs research. Yeah. Is yeah. it feeds into the hypothesis that the research might be funded on, which is if we can provide a, sub, um, a substitute yeah. for uh, methamphetamine, well, can we? Yeah. Uh, yep. Help people to reduce their use, but it's re- it is really important that people be committed to wanting to reduce yep. their use or manage their use. It's just nice that there's some pharmacotherapies starting to be thought about. Thought about yeah, for because well, the, use, cause it's out the of control, huge so. problem. Yeah. I mean, the idea of actually ketamine as a, a single dose um, for somebody who's undergoing a, um, a major issue. Or a what would you call it? Just a um, an episode, mm. okay, a yep. chronic episode yep. of um, anxiety, anger, and perhaps violence. Yep. Would ketamine be a useful tool mm. for ambulances, for ha- yeah. perhaps yep. to use um, to control the issue, to manage the issue, because that's what introduces the police into yeah. the equation. With ambulances when methamphetamine is used. Anyway, yeah, definitely. That's my hypothesis. That's no, my idea, and just sounds. You know, it sounds like a legitimate approach. Yeah, I yeah. love the idea. So, mascot and calm are the two studies. Very impressed with um, the Pennington. Anyway, he's doing some interesting stuff. Should we go to another song? Let's, or would you like to go to the next story? Let's do this quick one. All right, let's go from. Um, from Canada. Canada? Let's go. Okay, ahead. from we've done quite a bit about um, Canada's uh, British Columbia moves to BC, yep. moves to decriminalise small amounts of illicit drugs, and we know that they've been doing this for into this for some time, but yes. they've been having tr- trouble. They've actually got into providing programs of provision of drugs, mm. but they're having difficulty in getting things like heroin yep. and cocaine because they can't get a safe supply. Yeah. Yep. But uh, anyway, so the moves to decriminalise illicit drugs, okay, the possession of small amounts of illicit drugs. Yep. The Canadian province of British Columbia, BC, will decriminalise small amounts of illicit drugs for personal use, the government has announced in a first-of-its-kind measure in Canada that aims to tackle the opioid crisis. In a statement on Tuesday, the BC government said the province has been granted a three-year exemption to Canada's federal drug-controlled statute, the the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act. It's something that we could maybe think about in the ACT Mm. because we've been trodden on several times by introducing legislation that the federal government has been able to say, no, you can't do that. Um, according to a in a statement on Tuesday, the BC government no no did that bit. According to a government fact sheet, adults aged eighteen and above who are in possession of two point five grams or point oh nine ounces of certain innocent substances, including heroin, fentanyl, cocaine, methamphetamine, and MDMA, for personal use, will not be arrested, charged, or have their drugs seized. That's Interesting. They mm. won't have their drugs seized. Oh, I like that part. Yeah, <laughs> particularly because the people keep on bringing out yep. uh, Portugal as the great example mm. of how to control 
drug use and they do confiscate the they drugs. Yeah. And that in itself, I would have seen as a problem, puts people yeah. back onto the black market yeah. again to get another uh, resupply of their drugs. Yes. The exemption will come into effect on January 31, 2023 and last until January 31, 2026. Mm. Sheila Malcolmson, BC Minister of Mental Health and Addictions, said during a news conference in Vancouver, quote, this is a very important day. Quote, the federal government's approval of British Columbia's request to decriminalise people who use drugs is a major step in changing how we view addiction and drug use in British Columbia. It reflects our government's agreement that substance use is a public health issue, not a criminal one. Mm. Canada has reported nearly 27,000 deaths from opioid overdoses between January 2016 and September 2021. 27,000 deaths. It reflects our government... Oh, hang on. According to government figures, while the COVID-19 pandemic has worsened the crisis, and that's been echoed over here yep. too, hasn't it, Bryce? Definitely. Between April 2020 and March 2021, Canada saw 7,224 7, opioid deaths, a 95% increase compared with the same period in a year earlier. Most of the deaths occurred in B.C., Alberta and Ontario. 95%. Yep. But harm reduction workers and drug decriminalisation advocates say the BC exemption announced on Tuesday does not do enough to tackle a nationwide crisis that they argue needs immediate action. Zoe Dodd, a harm reduction worker and drug policy expert in Toronto, said via Twitter, 2.5 grams is bogus. This is far too low. Why also wait until January 2023? That's probably a good question. Why not immediately? Another great question. The Liberals prove once again that they won't commit to decriminalisation. This isn't just an issue local to British Columbia. In January, Toronto Public Health also requested a a federal exemption to to decriminalise personal possession of illicit drugs, citing an unprecedented increase in opioid-related deaths. The city saw 551 confirmed opioid deaths from July 1, 2020 to uh, June 30th, 2021, a a 57% increase from the same period a year earlier. Again, 95%, 57% staggering figures. The Toronto Public Health Statement said criminalisation makes it difficult for people who use drugs to access harm reduction services increasing the risk of injury, disease and overdose. Even more criminal even more criminal records make it harder for people to find a job and a place to live. Canada's current drug laws have resulted in a disproportionate criminalization of black and indigenous people and that would is probably echoed worldwide. Worldwide, I would think certainly in Australia. And yes. Um, definitely in Australia. As such, decriminalisation is important and necessary part of the comprehensive approach to the, the crisis. It's a multifaceted approach. approach yeah. yep. Other experts on Tuesday also urged Canada to expand the drug decriminalisation, dis- uh, stressing that the opioid crisis goes beyond British Columbia alone. 
Jamie Livingston, an associate professor of criminalization at St. Mary's. Criminology, Ah, oh, sorry, criminology. Criminalization. <laughs> hey. I just had to correct you <laughs> on that one. That is a one. very distinct difference. <laughs> very big difference. Um, at St. Mary's University in Halifax, Nova Scotia, wrote on Twitter, people who use drugs in Nova Scotia and throughout Canada deserve the benefits derived from drug deed criminalization. The harms of stigma and criminalization don't stop at the British Columbia border. Indeed, they don't. Yep. And I'm really pleased to know that people are lobbying in a variety of ways or from a variety of directions that, you know, BC has a problem yeah. and has a method of fixing or a trial yeah. towards fixing that issue and other parts of Canada are saying, me too. Yeah. And, you know, it's just clearly drug users or peers are organising and making themselves heard. And we know that Canada has a very, very uh, active peer education yeah. movement. Yeah. And yeah. really pleased to hear that they're jumping in on and saying, let's all do it. Let's not just some of us do it. Yeah, and, and we'll keep bringing that story to you as it develops. Yeah, well, we hope got, we will anyway. Got legs anyway. How are we going? Okay, uh, quarter we'll, two. Yeah, I think we'll go to a, uh, a quick song and then we'll and come then back. And we'll finish off with the uh, the Ukraine war story. Yeah, because it's really horrible over yeah, in Ukraine, yeah. and we feel very so much for them, so sad for them. We did a story two weeks ago on a person who was trying to get support his habit and yeah. having such a huge problem in getting any replacement therapies. Anyway, yeah, but, onto the song. But this is the you know it's not like yeah it's sort of been pushed down a little bit in the media recently because we've had other things going on. But this is you know the horrendous things well, are still yeah, occurring. Yeah, yes. So we'll be back after... Uh, this is Midnight Oil. Beds are burning on 2XXFM. Only 8.3.
Welcome back. Yes, uh, people-powered radio uh, news from the drug war front, 2XXFM. With Bryce and Marion. Bryce and Marion, that's right. Here we are. And look, oh, hello, Jeffrey. by the way. A Hi, big Jeff. shout-out to Jeffrey. Damn you, up at Rockhampton having <laughs> a wonderful time yeah. and having a massage and feeling better, I'm hoping. That we send you our love anyway, we do. despite the fact that we're jealous as all hell. <laughs> I'm anyway, not jealous. Because it's freezing down here, Jeffrey. I tell you right now. Um, the next story we go to, and probably our last for the day, is the invisible battle in the Ukraine war, and we'll keep you apprised of this as we go on. Um, because just think what would happen if we were to be at war. Yep. Think of us as peers, what would happen to drug users and Definitely. drug users. So we should get things in place immediately to uh, make sure that there are laws that will protect us and our behaviour mm. from being discriminated against if something like a Vladimir Putin decided to invade Australia. Peter Dutton, maybe. <laughs> and uh, he's... Okay, the invisible battle in the Ukraine war. This is from Andre Gomez, Talking Drugs, 17 of the 5th, 2022. The war in Ukraine has viscerally been played out on screens across the world. While the violence of warfare has taken centre stage, there's an invisible pain throbbing through some of the most marginalised group in, groups in Ukrainian society. 
Before the war, Ukraine had an estimated 317,000 people injecting drugs like heroin, with almost 15,000 accessing opioid substitution therapy, OST, medication like methadone and buprenorphine through the government's publicly funded harm reduction program, which has been operating since 2017. OST is dependent on repeating, on repeated and consistent access to medication, be it provided at home or in health clinics. This ensures that people are able to manage their consumption and live a fulfilling life around it. Many people on OST are also HIV positive or have a treatment resistant tuberculosis, meaning that for many, access to stable medication is a matter of life or death. Mm. The Russian invasion meant that for the first time in over half a decade, certainties of life become huge unknowns. The International Foundation Alliance for Public Health, the APH, one of Ukraine's earlier international partners to deliver HIV and OST medication and health services, has been tracking and analysing the war's impact on OST medication. They estimated at the end of March 2022 around 2,100 OST patients were currently unable to receive their medication with a further 6,000 facing an increased risk of medication interruption due to war, drug war, to war damage. Russian's occupation or lack of supplies. The AHP's APH's executive director has publicly stated that he feared that the war could erase all years of hard-earned health gains in a matter of days. With medication pro production compromised by the invasion and a further freeze on public funds that subsidised the OST program, harm reduction workers had to quickly shift their responsibilities to humanitarian aid connecting people with HIV to still-operating health services or directing those people on OST to places that may still have medicine. Speaking to Talking Drugs, Katerina Grittosenko, Information Manager at the Hope and Trust Foundation, said that the invasion quickly compromised access to OST and other harm reduction supplies. Quote, participant of the OST program in most cities in Ukraine, including Kiev, were forced to reduce their dosage. In a number of cities, this was an, there was an interruption in the receiving substitution of substitution maintenance therapy. That's shocking. Katerina added that a martial law from the Ministry of Health was issued to provide patients with 30-day oh, 30 supplies of medication that doctors have hesitated to follow through for fear of distributing too much and compromising its availability for others. We're not going to be able to finish this uh, piece, Bryce, because it's, it's 11.54 and we're going to have to do the song. Mm. So I'm thinking that perhaps we might finish this next week. Yeah, or good. put it up on the website, whichever you like. Yep. Um, and maybe we should probably go to Golden Brown. Yeah, sounds about Say bye-bye to everybody and give them all our love and please be safe. Get in touch with Karma if you need help. Um, 62533643. And we will get, we send you our love and I'll see you next week, Bryce. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, everyone. Thank uh, you very much. Bye-bye. Have, have a good week. Yep. Thank you.
sun Lays me down with my mind She runs throughout the night No need to fight Never a frown with golden brown Every time just like the last On her ship tied to the mast Two distant lands takes both my hands Never a frown with golden brown Golden brown, fine attemptress Through the ages she Heading west from far away, stays for a day. 